I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at a, I think this is the biggest chunk we've taken so far in John. It's actually worthy of uh, a few sermons, but we're going to look at just kind of the highlights of this morning and leave it to each of us in our own work to work these things out uh, in our hearts and lives. So John chapter 18, we're going to read verse uh, 28 all the way down to verse 40 at the end of the chapter and take a look at those same verses. So before we read and consider it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we see our Lord Jesus on trial, uh, we note the injustice, we see what's going on, we mourn that this took place in his life, and yet we rejoice because it's exactly what we needed to happen for our salvation and what you had decreed. And so we pray that you'll teach us things that we need to know from this passage, things which may not even be visible on the surface, but which your Holy Spirit will testify to our hearts and bring home to our souls. I'll work powerfully that every one of us would walk out of here a different person than we walked in, closer to you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a certain custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives. This morning, beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, this morning, I want us to notice just uh, three things from the passage. Uh, no real main theme can come up with one. I'm sure they are out there. And the first thing I want us to notice is that hypocrisy is ugly or just the ugliness or the horribleness of the Jewish hypocrisy. The second thing is that Christianity is otherworldly. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And the final thing I want us to notice is that this Christianity is for murderers and thieves, people just like Barabbas. So I want us to begin by looking at verses 28 down to 32 
under the theme that hypocrisy is ugly. Now, in these verses, notice just a few things. The Jewish trial has now concluded. Remember, Jesus was brought to Annas first, like the godfather of the high priest, no longer officially in office, but his son-in-law Caiaphas is. He's brought to Annas first, then he's brought to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at night, and then he's brought to Caiaphas and Sanhedrin in the morning because you're not allowed to conduct a trial at night, so they're just given the broad appearance of doing things well according to Jewish law. So his religious trial is ended. Now this starts his Roman trial before Pilate, then over to Herod and back to Pilate, although John doesn't record the details surrounding his trial before Herod. So the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate's headquarters. Pilate was normally stationed in Caesarea right along the Mediterranean, but during times when Jerusalem, which was under his uh, jurisdiction, would swell with feasts, especially the Passover, he would actually go to Jerusalem to overwatch things and make sure that things were being conducted okay, no riots, nothing that would get the attention of Caesar with whom he was on a pretty short leash by this point in his uh, career. So the Jews would not enter Pilate's quarters, it's interesting, but they actually stayed outside when they brought Jesus to Pilate and Pilate had to come out to them. Very interesting. Didn't want to go in and apparently defile themselves so they could finish out the rest of the Passover celebration and finish out all the great feasts and all the good food. They had Pilate come out to them rather than walk in there. And so Pilate came out, verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? He wants the formal charges. Finally, we get somebody acting like a judge. What's, what's wrong with this guy? What do you have against him? Now, the Jews reveal their incredible hate of the truth and their blindness when they say, verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Paraphrase. Pilate, take our word for it. We, the holy and righteous Sanhedrin, have already done all the groundwork. We have already figured out that this is an evil guy. We just want you to take our word for it, conduct no trial, and just expedite all the way to the sentence and getting him up on a cross. That's what we want you for. We didn't come to you so you could conduct a trial. We came to you because we can't actually accomplish what we want without you. So just take our word for it. But Pilate wasn't going to be railroaded by them. He has, again, a long history of going back and forth with the Jews and not being friends with them and a little bit of a rivalry. So he says, verse 31, well, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Again, Pilate's actually doing something brilliant here, something that's actually quasi-fair up to this point for the Lord Jesus. What charge do you bring? Take our word for it. That's not going to work. If you don't have a charge that you're going to bring against this Jesus, a charge where he's violating a Roman law because I'm a Roman officer, then you guys can judge him by your own law. You go for it. So paraphrase of what Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I'm a civil leader in service to Rome. If you don't have a civil charge to bring against him, then this doesn't involve me. You guys are religious leaders. I'm a civil leader. If there's no civil charge and there's just a religious charge, you guys deal with him the Sanhedrin. And then the Jews straight out reveal their hearts here. Verses 31 to 32. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. D.A. Carson on these verses wrote, when Rome took over Judea and began direct rule through a prefect in AD 
year six, the capital or death penalty jurisdiction was taken away from the Jews and invested in the governor. So Rome's common practice in provincial administration. So the Jews needed to do two things, get Pilate to find Jesus of a capital crime and then get Pilate to issue that Jesus be crucified. What they're saying, we can't put anyone to death. The Romans did not allow the Jews to do that. Now you can understand Stephen Acts 7, right? He's mob violence stones him. But the Romans did not allow this. They, they did not look favorably upon the Jews instituting even death by stoning, let alone crucifixion. And so what the Jews are saying is, look, our hands are tied. Why are they even saying this? Why are they saying we can't kill him? Because all they really want is Jesus dead. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in the trial. They don't really want the truth. They can't stand the truth. And they reveal to the whole world something sick and dark about every human heart by nature. We just want this Jesus dead. That's all we want. We don't even want a trial. We don't want, a, we don't want a, a trial. We don't want to do a trial with him ourselves in a right judicial way. We just want him dead. That's what we really want. And we're told in verse 32, what Jesus had already alluded to in John 12, verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had said, I'm going to die by being lifted up, crucifixion. And indeed, what the Jews are talking about here is, look, we don't have the ability to get him crucified. We need you to do that, Pilate. Let's make it happen. And John's telling us the bigger story. This was to fulfill what Jesus had already said, that he's going to die by being crucified. So Jesus has to get to a cross according to his own words. Jesus has to die on a cross. And the only way he's going to get there is with the blind, hateful hypocrisy of the Jews pushing it. And with the Roman familiarity with crucifixion, those two are going to have to work in tandem. The Romans, they have no reason to crucify Jesus. The Jews, they aren't allowed to and they won't crucify Jesus. But you combine these two and we can get Jesus on that cross. Now there is one glaring thing which John draws attention to in this passage. It's a subtle yet exclamatory hint at what's going on with the Jews. Verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Remember, from the beginning, we've noticed that John is really subtle in allusions to the Old Testament and in his teaching. Matthew in Matthew 23 just lays out a whole chapter of Jesus saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. John, one little subtle indication of what's going on. They didn't enter Pilate's headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves. Now, there is no specific law in the Old Testament forbidding the Jews from entering into a Gentile's premises. You could maybe extrapolate that if you go a few levels beyond. <laughs> but there's no specific law, but it should come as no surprise that in the Mishnah, the oral, the written oral tradition of the Jews, that the Mishnah provides evidence that a Jew who entered the dwelling places of Gentiles became ceremonial unclean according to D.A. Carson. Now, if you did become unclean, they had ceremonial cleansing rituals. They could go through Leviticus 15, Leviticus 22, even one that took seven days in, in Numbers chapter 9. So that if you became unclean at the Passover, you could go through the cleansing ritual, become undefiled, 
become cleansed, and then celebrate the Passover one month later. That's in Numbers 9. That stipulation is given. So the Jewish leaders had an option here. They could have just gone in and done the trial and done things right, but they stayed outside because they're more concerned about their ritual purity than they are crucifying the Messiah. And I hope you caught the irony of that. They can't see how defiled they will become when, by other gospel accounts, they're also going to be including his blood be on our head and on the head of our children. They can't see how defiled they are about to become and have already become by giving the Messiah their hope a mistrial and putting him on the cross. But they can see really clearly how by their own oral tradition, they'll become defiled if they go into Pilate's headquarters. This is what Jesus calls, remember Matthew 23, straining out a gnat, but swallowing the entire, every one of the humps of that massive animal, a camel. Now kids, you get the imagery, right? You strain out a gnat, you've got a colander that's got tiny holes in it or a strainer, and you look, oh, I got a gnat out, just this tiny, tiny bug. But meanwhile, on your kitchen table, you have a camel and you swallow the entire thing. You'd say, probably would have been better to avoid swallowing the camel and just drink the gnat, right? This is what they're doing. Oh, at least we didn't defile ourselves. Never mind the fact that we crucify the Son of God. Never mind the fact that we can't stand him, don't care what the truth is, don't want to give him a fair trial. We're going to make sure that we don't defile ourselves. Now, we might be content to condemn the Pharisees and feel pretty superior in ourselves. But what I want us to talk about here just for a brief minute, and if somebody says, uncle, I'll skip. <laughs> I'm not gonna spend too much time on it. The issue at stake here is, what do we do with this passage ourselves? All around the world today, there are Christians, professing believers, straining out gnats, but swallowing camels, majoring in minors. And those people all around the world doing this, those professing believers are actually us too, right here. Myself included, all of us, we're doing this. Believers staring at pornography or fantasizing about being married to someone else, but at least they are orthodox enough to call homosexuality and transgender movement sins. Professing Christians cheating on their taxes, bashing the civil leaders rather than praying for them, but at least we're members of a church and go to church unlike so many Christians who don't regularly attend worship. Professing Christians abusing and harassing and hating other people, but who content themselves because, hey, we're doing our personal devotions 30 minutes every day. Professing Christians living for money and greed and worldly success, but hey, at least we give our 10% to the Lord's kingdom. Professing Christians being horrible, contentious, uncaring neighbors, but at least we're decrying society's decrease and morals. I've not heard an uncle yet. A couple more. Professing Christians who won't do the hard work of loving their spouse and training and disciplining their children, but they'll be sure to let everyone know that they are alarmed by the dissolution of the nuclear family. Professing Christians trying to amass a righteousness that will stand before God, trying to look better than other believers, yet bashing all those liberal churches which have lost the gospel and are preaching works righteousness. Or here's, the, here's a big one. Professing believers crucifying the Son of God, but hey, we didn't defile ourselves in Pilate's court. 
sick, isn't it? Sick the way the human heart naturally operates. Sick the way our born-again lives and hearts can operate too in ways that we need to be purging out so that we can become more like Christ and more cleansed on the inside like David prayed in Psalm 51. It's so easy, beloved, to pride ourselves in our Bible reading, our devotional life, our church attendance, our vocal stand for the truth, yet be totally blind to these massive areas of our life, which are, I like to say, off the rails, out of whack. Things are not going well. That was the hypocrisy of these leaders, so blind. They didn't care about Jesus. They didn't care about following him. They couldn't see that he was the Messiah, though he fulfilled every single prophecy and was about to. But at least they didn't defile themselves. Something to think about. Christianity, the second thing I want us to notice is Christianity is otherworldly. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, you're Jesus, what should you say? Pilate's asking the question, are you the king of the Jews? We probably naturally are inclined to say, well, Jesus should have just said yes. Didn't he kind of avoid answering the question when he said, well, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Why didn't he just go straight out and say yes? Because remember, he's talking to Pilate. Pilate serves under Caesar. Caesar is the king. So Jesus, in his response, uh, is, is because he didn't say yes or no, is basically saying this, well, it depends on where you're coming from, Pilate. If you're talking about me being the king of the Jews, like an earthly king in competition with Caesar, and me as the king of the Jews, I'm trying to establish a kingdom on earth that's just like all the other earthly kingdoms, then no, I'm not the king of the Jews. Not in that sense, not in the political sense. But if you're talking about something that the Jews may have told you about me, that he's claiming to be king, well, I'm king of the Jews in that sense, yes. But I've got a kingdom that's not of this world. So he asks Pilate, do you say this of your own accord, meaning are you going at this from a political Roman perspective? Or did others say this to you about me? Are you coming at this from a religious perspective? And then Pilate answered, am I a Jew? You can almost hear the sneering. <laughs> Why would I come at this from a religious perspective? Are you calling me a Jew? Am I a Jew? I don't get caught up in all this religious fanaticism and revelations about God and all this other stuff. Don't pin that on me. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And then Pilate starts sounding like a judge. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate's still trying to get at this. What, why are all these people against you? Why do they hate you? Why have they brought you to me? Why did they come and get a bunch of soldiers earlier? What is going on? Fill me in. And then in verse 36, Jesus launches into some of the most powerful teaching regarding how the kingdom of God relates to the kingdoms of this world and the stark contrast between how they operate. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So A.W. Pink said this about verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, warned Pilate that there was another world to which Jesus belonged. 
My kingdom, which will not be brought in by fighting, was to assure Pilate that there was a power superior to the boasted might of Rome, which then dominated the earth. So Jesus was communicating a lot to Pilate regarding his kingdom. First, God's kingdom is uh, God's kingdom that he is building is in this world, but it's not from or of this world. Jesus didn't say my kingdom uh, is is not in this world, it's actually on a different planet. He just said it's not of or from. The source of my kingdom is not from this world. God is the source of my kingdom. Which means Jesus' kingdom is in this world, indeed. We are in the world as God's people. We're just not of it. God's kingdom exists in the world. God has people all over this world, and each person is in this world, living, working, obeying, loving, serving. This is true of believers all over the world. Yet God's kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different than any other kingdom in this world. And I realize I'm saying this in America. Let me just throw this out there. God's kingdom is completely different than the American kingdom. It has a completely different origin than the nation of America. God's kingdom is from heaven. It has its source in God. America is from this world. It's of this earth. It has its source in men. Now, as such, God's kingdom is not built by typical means. Jesus mentions that. Earthly kingdoms are built by might, by force. You overpower another kingdom. You wipe them out or you subdue them in one little battle and then you make them be your subjects and you sort of subsume them under your rule. Or you can just wipe the slate clean and then you got a barren land to fill with your own people. That's how kingdoms would advance, by the power of the sword. Who's got more soldiers? Who's got more chariots? Who has bigger atomic bombs? Right? That's how kingdoms operate all the way down to this day. And Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Now this, this is powerful message to Pilate. If I were a king, your head would be off. My servants would be busy fighting. I'd have a sword in my hand. We would be going at it. My kingdom is not of this world. That is not the method of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, human beings are not beaten to submission or killed with a sword. Rather, human beings are evangelized and loved. Humans are persuaded and won into the kingdom. In earthly kingdoms, pomp, arrogance, might, muscle, pride, aggressiveness, and trampling on the heads of your enemy are the tools for building and growth. But in God's kingdom, humility, weakness, meekness, and loving your enemies are the tools for building and for growth. Now, most of this skirted past Pilate and must have left him thoroughly confused, but Pilate latched onto one thing. If you look at what Jesus says in verse 36, he says, my kingdom, my kingdom, my servants, my kingdom. Pilate latched onto that. And if you look at verse 37, he says, so you're a king, huh? That didn't get by him. Are you the king of the Jews? Depends how you're asking it. My kingdom, my kingdom, my servants. Oh, so you're a king, though. You're still saying you're a king. And Pilate's tone is probably a bit different here. At first, he had the tone of a sneering Roman ruler who was above the Jews. But now he's got the tone of a, a sincerely confused or even curious man. If you're not a threat to Caesar and you're not a typical earthly king, then what in the world are you? Pilate just couldn't wrap his mind around this. And Jesus finishes this episode here, this little uh, one with verse 37. You say that I'm a king. He's affirming that, yes, I'm a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What I want to highlight here is this. Jesus tells us how God's kingdom is built, not by fighting, but with what? Did you catch it? Truth. Witnessing to the truth. That's how God's kingdom is built. That's the weapon of God's kingdom. Older writers, including Spurgeon, have talked about, look, we don't have to make the word of God powerful. We just open the cage of the lion and let it out, and the lion will go out and do its bidding. That's what, that's what we do with the word of God as believers. We just unleash it. Take it off the leash. Spread it out. Witness to it. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God, the truth, to build God's kingdom, not with swords and clubs and guns, but with witnessing to the truth. And Pilate here, some have said, well, he's sneering. Some have said he's indifferent. Some have said he just wants out because he leaves after this. Yeah, what is truth? No big deal. That, that's fine. Just doesn't understand what's going on. What is truth? The person standing right in front of you and you're about ready to get a dose of the truth. You're going to watch truth happen. How? Jesus is heading right toward the cross. The truth, we are so bad, we are so wicked, we are so evil that we need someone to die in our place. Jesus just kind of shuts it down after this, as it were. Now we're just going to watch what he does as he goes to the cross and suffers in our place. That's the truth. Christianity is built on the spread of the truth, beloved, not the state of American politics or Spanish politics if we live in Spain, or Kenyan politics if we're citizens of Kenya. The church, Christianity, is built, Jesus' kingdom is built on the spread of the truth. And then finally, Christianity is for murderers and thieves. Verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? <laughs> That's like a pretty preemptive question, right? As in, Pilate's fairly strongly recommending that they pick Jesus to be released. So then Pilate could say, hey, I've at least done a little bit of diligence here. This is off my hands. I don't have to get in trouble for this. I weighed the matter a little bit, said he's innocent. I can still call Jesus a criminal, which is what they want me to do but I can get him off the hook. So justice has been served and so has mercy. But they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Luke calls him a murderer. He was a well-known thief. He's on trial or he's already been through the trial. He's ready to be crucified. He's probably sitting in his cell and he's no doubt heard about what's transpiring with the Lord Jesus Christ here in all these trials. And then the Roman soldiers come down to Barabbas' cell, and it's interesting. He must have been shaking in his boots. <laughs> Guess now it's the time. I'm going to go be crucified. They flog you beforehand. They wrap the charges around my neck. I'm going to pick up my own crossbeam. I'm going to walk up there. They're going to crucify me. It's going to be painful and horrible. This is the bloody end of my thieving, murderous life, where I was notorious around these parts for how wicked I am. And they walked into the cell. They unshackled him, and they said, you're free to go. Whoa, that's a turn of events. And now Barabbas, this known thief that everybody in that town would have hated with passion, probably personally 
because he had done them or one of their family members harm. He's walking around town free as a bird. And this is happening because Jesus is actually being imprisoned and is taking the place of Barabbas. It's interesting, the language here, Barabbas means son of the father. So we've got one son of a father, the son, capital S, Jesus, swapping places with another son of a father, Barabbas, lowercase s. And the son of the father, Barabbas, gets off because the ultimate son gets crucified, gets arrested, gets put in his place. If Jesus had gotten himself off, Barabbas would have been crucified and justly so, but he never would have known mercy. But Jesus walked himself right into the cross, walked himself right into imprisonment, walked himself right into handcuffs so that Barabbas could go free. Spurgeon put it this way, the episode in the Savior's history shows that in the judgment of the people, Jesus Christ was a greater offender than Barabbas. And for once, I may venture to say, the voice of the people, if it be read in the light of the imputation of our sins to Christ, was the voice of God. Christ, as he stood covered with his people's sins, had more sins laid upon him than that which rested upon Barabbas. In him was no sin. He was altogether incapable of becoming a sinner. He was wholly harmless and undefiled. That's Jesus. But he takes the whole load of his people's guilt upon himself by imputation. And as Jehovah looks upon him, he sees more guilt lying upon the Savior than even upon this atrocious sinner, Barabbas. Barabbas goes free innocent in comparison with the tremendous weight which rests upon the Savior. Now, what does this mean? What's going on? Why is this significant? Jesus is substituting himself for Barabbas. Maybe beyond even John's, the writer, the Apostle John's ability to comprehend. But you look at what the Holy Spirit's writing here. It's just fascinating. The perfectly righteous one is jailed and crucified. The really wicked guy is let go free because Jesus substituted himself for him. This is just called the doctrine of substitution. And it means this. Our work is unnecessary to bring us to God because in Christ, by believing him, we're already to God. John Stott on the cross of Christ wrote, A substitute is one who acts in place of another in such a way as to render the other's actions unnecessary. What did Barabbas do to get out of prison and get off the hook for crucifixion? What action did he perform? Why did they unshackle him to let him go? He did nothing. He was freed, free of charge. Didn't pay a penny, didn't atone for his sins, no reparations made, and he's let go free. And that's you and me, beloved. How have we been freed from our sin? Being shackled to the devil and the world and the passions of our own flesh. How have any of us been freed from that burden, that bondage, that punishment, that guilt that goes along with sinning? How have any of us that's been freed? It wasn't because we took off our handcuffs. It wasn't because we pried the bars of the prison open and got out. It's because Jesus voluntarily signed up for being imprisoned and crucified in our place. Barabbas wasn't crucified. You and I don't have to go through hell forever because Jesus went there for us. It's tremendous. 
For any who don't believe, or for those we know who don't believe, this is just the essence of Christianity, substitution. It's hard to get at a more cardinal doctrine here. Jesus putting himself in our place. He died instead of us on the cross. He shed his blood so that our blood would not have to be shed forever. Barabbas didn't clean up his act, didn't pay for his sins to become acceptable to God. Jesus just volunteered himself to take Barabbas' place. Ultimately, of course, God used the crowd to accomplish this, the means by which it would happen. But Jesus ran himself all the way to there so Barabbas could get out scot-free. Jesus died in the place of a murderer like Barabbas, of thieving tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, of cowards and hypocrites like Peter. He died for prostitutes. He died for drunkards. He died for the worst of sinners. He died for people like you and me. And if that doesn't mean much to us, then maybe we should look in the mirror, particularly at our heart. And what we'll see in our hearts, even as regenerated believers, is a whole host of filth that ought to get us crucified and ought to put us on the hook for our sins forever under God's wrath. Beloved, we're off the hook because Jesus put himself on the hook. Every believer here is free. We are not enslaved. We are not in prison. We are not awaiting God's eternal judgment against our sin. Every one of us has been let out and is now free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in that freedom. Let me conclude by saying this, A.W. Pink, we are all by nature like Barabbas and deserve God's wrath and condemnation, yet Barabbas was accounted righteous and set free. The Lord Jesus is perfectly innocent, and yet he is counted a sinner, punished as a sinner, and put to death that we may live. Christ suffers, though guiltless, that we may be pardoned. We are pardoned, though guilty, because of what Christ does for us. We are sinners and yet counted righteous. Christ is righteous and yet counted a sinner. Catch his last line here. Happy is that man who understands this doctrine and has laid hold of it by faith for the salvation of his soul. Or to use the language of the hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the life of every Christian here. How do you view yourself before God? How do I view myself? Do you view yourself in bondage? Under the misery of being imprisoned to the devil, the world, and your flesh. Do you view yourself as awaiting one of these days, because that's how God works, right? Tit for tat. Condemnation from God. He's going to really come and make you pay and go after you and get you like a judge does a criminal, like a law enforcement officer goes after criminals. Is that how you view God? If it is, it's entirely wrong. Do you view yourself as one who's been set free, as one who has no more debt to pay, as one whose whole burden has been lifted off. The shackles are removed, the prison door opens, and we walk into this brand new kingdom where we are free to serve Jesus, free to love God. We'll never have to be punished for our sins like a criminal is and never be subject to God's condemnation. How are you living? How are you viewing yourself, beloved? It, it matters. 
in our everyday life. It matters for our joy. It matters for our obedience. Let's pray.